Hey, history enthusiasts, you get not one, but two events in history today. With that said, on with the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Day in History class, where we uncover the remnants of history every day. The day was April 9th, 1921. Mary Winston was born in Hampton, Virginia, to Ella and Frank Winston. Mary would grow up to become an accomplished mathematician and aerospace engineer and the first Black female engineer to work at the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA. Mary faced the challenges of segregation and discrimination as she progressed in her career, as did many of the other Black women who worked as mathematicians and engineers. But now she's recognized for her contributions to the space program and her commitment to serving her community and creating more opportunities for women in science. Mary went to the segregated George P. Phoenix Training School. And when she graduated from there with highest honors, she began attending the Hampton Institute. She graduated from Hampton in 1942 with Bachelor of Science degrees in math and physical sciences. Her plan was to become a teacher and she did teach math for a year at an all-Black school in Calvert County, Maryland. When she went back to Hampton to care for her ailing father, she started working as a receptionist at the King Street USO Club, an organization that served Black military service members during World War II. Over the next several years, she married Levi Jackson and had a son, Levi Jr. She took time off work to raise little Levi and took a couple more jobs, as a bookkeeper and an army secretary. But in 1951, the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics recruited Mary to be a research mathematician or a human computer. She began working in the Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory in the segregated West Area Computing Section, where all the mathematicians were Black women, and reported to Dorothy Vaughn, whom she had met while she was an army secretary at Fort Monroe. At the time, a ton of computing jobs were necessary to make up for increased production due to World War II. White women were being hired as computers, but after employment discrimination was outlawed by Executive Order 8802, Black women joined the ranks of mathematicians at Langley. Of course, that's not to say discrimination in hiring and within the jobs ended all of a sudden. Computing was often viewed as inferior work by the male engineers, and segregation, racism, and sexism were still a part of the mathematician's experience. Despite this, Mary excelled. After two years in the computing pool, engineer Kazimierz Zarnecki asked her to come work for him in the supersonic pressure tunnel, a 60,000 horsepower wind tunnel. When Zarnecki suggested she train to be promoted to an engineer, she accepted the challenge. She petitioned the city of Hampton to be able to attend all-white graduate-level math and physics classes at the University of Virginia. Her petition was accepted. She took the courses, and she was promoted in 1958 to become the first Black female engineer at NASA, which was founded in July of that same year. She also co-authored her first report that year, called Effects of Nose Angle and Mach Number on Transition on Cones at Supersonic Speeds. Over the next couple of decades, Mary worked as an aeronautical engineer, working on reports that mainly focused on the behavior of the boundary layer of air around airplanes. 
but she eventually grew frustrated with not being promoted and not being able to break into management positions. She left engineering and in 1979 became Langley's Federal Women's Program Manager. In that position, she was able to help hire women and people in underrepresented groups, help them advance their careers, and uplift their accomplishments. In the 1970s, Mary helped build a wind tunnel for the Science Club at Hampton's King Street Community Center. She said the following about that act in a local newspaper. We have to do something like this to get them interested in science. Sometimes they are not aware of the number of black scientists and don't even know of the career opportunities until it is too late. Mary retired from Langley in 1985, by which time she had received some awards for her leadership and service. She died in February of 2005, but she has since received more recognition, including being featured in a best-selling book called Hidden Figures and a movie of the same name. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you'd like to learn more about Mary Jackson, you can listen to the episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class called Mary Winston Jackson, NASA Engineer. If there are any upcoming days in history that you'd really like me to cover on the show, give us a shout on social media at T-D-I-H-C podcast. Thank you for joining me today. See you same place, same time tomorrow. Hey everyone, I'm Eves, and welcome to This Day in History Class, a podcast that travels back in time one day at a time. The day was April 9th, 1816. The African Methodist Episcopal Church was founded. The AME Church, as it's known, was the first organized denomination in the U.S. to be formed by Black people. The AME Church has its roots in the Free African Society, an organization that provided aid to newly freed Black people in the U.S. Black preachers Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, as well as other people in Philadelphia, formed the organization in the 1780s. Facing discrimination at St. George's Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia, a group of Black congregants decided to leave the church. Most of them wanted to affiliate with the Protestant Episcopal Church, since they did not want to align with the Methodists who had persecuted them. So the Free African Society opened the St. Thomas African Episcopal Church, with Jones as the head. But Allen led a small group of people who wanted to remain Methodists. In 1794, the Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church was dedicated into service. In 1799, Bishop Francis Asbury of the Methodist Episcopal Church ordained Richard Allen as minister of Bethel. Allen and white Methodist leaders developed the founding document of Bethel AME. But as membership in the church grew, so did tensions between the Black people in the church and white authorities. The latter attempted to limit Bethel's independence, doing things like threatening to prevent church meetings. They still considered Bethel to be an entity that existed within St. George's and therefore subject to its authority. 
But Allen continued to advocate for African Methodist independence, even as white Methodists escalated the tactics that they used to oppose the church's authority. He turned to an attorney who advised him to add an African supplement to the church's founding document. This supplement said that Bethel's trustees, rather than the Methodist Conference, controlled the church's property. It also said that if the pastor at St. George's did not fulfill his preaching and sacramental obligations, the trustees would call on someone else. On top of Allen's efforts, Bethel members rejected the actions of St. George's ministers who attempted to assert their authority. By 1816, Bethel had around 1,400 members. In the beginning of that year, the validity of Allen's African supplement was challenged in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Allen emerged victorious in the case, with the court affirming Bethel's independence and Allen's right to self-determination as a pastor. James Champion, a minister at Bethel, and Daniel Coker, a Black Methodist in Baltimore, wrote a treatise about the rise of African Methodism with Allen, and Allen encouraged their congregations to form a denomination. On April 9, 1816, Allen and Coker called Black Methodists to meet in Philadelphia. Coker was elected the first bishop of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, but Coker either declined the position or resigned, and soon Allen was consecrated as the first bishop of the church. As more Black preachers and parishioners grew tired of dealing with racism in the Methodist Episcopal Church, they withdrew to align with the African Methodists. By the 1850s, the denomination had reached California, and after the Civil War and Reconstruction years, membership in the AME Church grew significantly. Today, the church has membership in dozens of countries. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If there's something or someone you'd really love to hear about on the show, send your ideas for topics to us at thisday at iheartmedia.com. If you'd rather leave us a note on social media, you can do so on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at T-D-I-H-C podcast. Thanks again for listening to the show, and we'll see you again tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.